babies. How are we? You know, I wondered what this was going to be like having to chat while you guys are trying to eat because I don't know that I can compete with all that yummy looking food that's on this plate. So, just so I can get a sense of things, how many of you were at the Desire Life last year? If you were here last year, raise your hand. Okay, so about not quite half. Okay. And for the ladies that weren't here last year, what happened? <laughs> so we're going to try and have just a little sense of kind of what the designer life is, just for those that, because there's more people in the room actually that have not been here before. And you're probably wondering, what is the designer life anyway? So, you know, it actually comes from Jeremiah 29 and 11, which says, for I know the signs I have for you. And is it your favorite? <laughs> amen, amen. Well, you know, there's plenty of room if you need to take a phrase left. So <laughs> but it's for I know the signs that I have for you. And so many times, ladies, we go through life just living by default. We just take whatever happens. Whatever comes our way, you know, we don't really have a plan, we're not following, you know, what God has for us. And then we look up and we wonder, why are we living so far beneath our promise? And it's because you're living life by default. So that's what the designer life is. And actually, I was at a conference last week, and I said something unintended, but then it actually became more profound after the fact. And what I said was, you know, you have to get to a point in life where you're willing to do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to be all that God can do. So I looked it up, and I'm going to read it to you, but I looked up, you know, whatever it takes. And it's defined as whatever it takes commitment is a resolve on a course of action based on an unshakable conviction with the willingness to go above and beyond to overcome all obstacles. Now here's the part that I added on. With a compelling desire to please God. A compelling desire to please God. And you know why that is? Because one of the things that I've realized as I've been living the design of life is without that compelling desire to please God, you really can't live the life you designed. And you know why, ladies? Because most of us are held hostage to what other people think. And we're bound to it, and we don't even realize it. And we're living life and making decisions, and in the backdrop of our mind, we're always thinking, but if I do this, what's everybody else going to say? What's everybody else going to say? But if you can shift your focus, and here's one of the things that I've started doing. You know what? Actually, I've been doing it for so long, I don't even remember when I, I didn't do it. But now I do it, and I do it in a biblical way. But one of my favorite scriptures that I live by, and I'm going to encourage you, if you really are serious about designing your life, is Galatians 1.10. In Galatians 1.10, I love it in the New Living Translation, because it says, Obviously, I am not trying to win the approval of people. Obviously, I am not trying to win the approval of people. If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. 
So now I have every biblical reason for doing what I do, and if people don't understand it, I pray for them, but I just, as long as God is well pleased, I am so at peace with that. And I promise you, if you can really get to that point where you are have that compelling desire to please God, it will free you up to live the life that God has planned for you. Because it's a good plan, and we hold ourselves back because we are so concerned about what everybody else will think. So I'm going to share this with you to show you just how free I am from what everybody thinks. Some of you know this because you were here last year, and I don't think I scared last year, but some of you actually walked through it with me because you experienced it, like Zanelli and Chico and Rachel. But about three years ago, I was here in South Africa, and I was scheduled to be here for about three and a half weeks. I was going to go to some other countries. I was going to Zim and Botswana. And my husband, Greg, was in the state, and he was going to join me in South Africa. And he was complaining that his leg hurt. And I thought, well, that sounds odd. I said, you probably should go get that check. He said, no, no, I don't have time. I don't have time. I'm trying to get ready and get packed to get out of there. I said, no, I think you should get that check. So he went and got it checked. I didn't think anything more about it. I went on about my day, and I had an engagement, a speaking engagement, out of the University of Johannesburg. So I'm literally 10 minutes from getting ready to go speak. And I get an SMS on my phone saying that Brady is in intensive care and they don't think he's going to make it because he has six blood clots in his leg, three of which have dislodged and gone in his lungs, and they can't do anything about it. So basically, it's, it's SMS like, we think your husband's going to die because there's really not much we can do to save him. FYI. So I'm looking at my phone and I'm thinking, okay, this is not real. Like, this is feeling surreal. And the people that I'm with, they said, what happened? And they, I just show them my phone. I can't even, like, articulate it. And I show them my phone. They're like, oh, my goodness. We'll go tell them that you're going to have to cancel. And, you know, if we hurry now, we can get you to the airport and you get on the flight because there's only one flight a day that goes direct from Johannesburg into Atlanta. If we hurry now, we can get you on the flight tonight, and you know you can get back home. And I said, no, hang on. I said, just start praying. And I went into the bathroom, and I sat on the toilet, and I had a moment with God, and in complete transparency, my first reaction was like, okay, really, God? Like, I'm already doing what you have me doing. I'm going all over Africa, completely out of my comfort zone. I have, I have load shedding, I have sometimes no water, like this is so far beyond my American experience, you know, I take cold baths, in fact, I learned, you know, Zanelli taught me on Wednesday night, and you know what, let me tell you how good God is, I'll get back to the story, but I have to tell you this, this is funny, literally, every time I come to South Africa, the water goes out, oh. every time. And I think it's just God reminding me because the first time I was here and I was like, God, am I really in Africa doing all this? Is this really like happening? And the water went out and it was out for two days. And I was like, I, I have no frame of record. I've never had not, I've never not had water in my life. But now every single time I come, and it'll go months with no water out of it, and then literally I arrive and the water's out. So Wednesday night, 
we had no water, and so now they say, no, 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 I'm going to show you how we do it. I'm going to show you how we did it, you know, when we didn't even have warm, hot, running water. So she puts this little water in the tub, and you just fill this up with water, and you soak yourself off, and then you pour it over and rinse yourself off. So I said, okay. So I put like this much water in a little tank. <laughs> what do I know? And about five minutes later, I'm still in the soaping phase, and the Nelly knocks on the bathroom door. She says, you need more water? I said, no, 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 I'm fine. She said, you need more water. <laughs> and she poured the, you know, poured the warm water into my thing, and I've got a full basin of water. And literally, it was just enough to get all the soap off. I said, this woman here, she knows what she's doing. But I'm having this moment with God sitting on the toilet, like, I'm doing everything you've asked. Now this. And literally, as I'm having that moment in my feelings, I immediately say, you know what? I've got to let my faith kick in. And my faith kicked in, and I realized that by his stripes, Brady's already healed. That prayers don't know distance. So I can pray for him right now in South Africa and in Atlanta. Jesus has already made a way for his healing. It's already done. And I just kind of got this righteous indignation in my spirit. And I said, you know what? I am not going to cave into this thing. Because the Bible says if we have faith and don't doubt, we can move mountains. And I made a decision. I was standing by faith on God's word and Brady was going to be fine. I went ahead and did my speaking engagement, and I did all my other speaking engagements. I went to Zimbabwe, I went to Botswana, Brady's in Atlanta, and in Texas there. And literally every day, one of my family members would call me and say, Stacy, you've got to come home. Brady is in intensive care. This man is dying. He's your husband. You need to come home. And I was like, nope, I have faith. I'm not doubting. I, if I get on that plane, the only reason I would get on that plane is because I doubt that God has already done. I'm not going to do it. My mother-in-law, you know, bless her heart, she was livid. She was like, <laughs> like, what kind of wife is this? We thought he had selected well, and now, after all these years, we get to this, where my son, I'm sitting bedside, because she sat by his bedside the whole time. I'm sitting by his bedside, and there's no wife, and all I can say is she's somewhere off in Africa. I said, I can't do it. I cannot, because if I come back the next thing, I have doubt. That would be the only reason I would come back. About the fourth day, they even had my twin brother call me. They like called in the heavy guns because they knew he would just really, you know, hit me, hit me hard. He said, Now listen today. I know you love the Lord. We all do. <laughs> but Brady is still in intensive care. This is your husband. You need to put your butt on a plane and get home. I said, I can't do it. i got to have faith and I can't doubt. I stayed here for three and a half weeks while Brady laid in the hospital in intensive care. All the pressure, everybody was talking about me like a dog. What kind of wife is that? Even the nurses were like, this is wife. And I did not come home. And Brady, perfectly fine from the blood clots. The blood clots dissolved, and he came out of the hospital. When I came home, he was able to breathe in the airport. So I share this with you because I want you to see that 
there are times if you're truly going to live the life God has for you, that you have to take a stand by faith. And it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks and what everybody else has said. It's that Galatians 1 and 10, if I were trying to win the approval of people, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's the backdrop I kind of want you to have as we go through this so you're not sitting here thinking, okay, well, she's just kind of saying this, but how, how real is it? I want you to know that everything I tell you, I've literally walked it out. Like, I have these uh, do not cry at home testimony. <laughs> so I'm not telling you something that sounds like a good idea. I'm literally sharing what I live and what I truly, truly believe. The next thing I want to share with you is, because whenever I'm in Africa, I notice that as an American, people often wonder, well, she just flew in from Atlanta, she comes to because, but you know, it's American, life is so different over there. I am far more African than I may look. Yep. I have an African name, yep. compliments of my sister Danelle, I'm in Bali, and you'll see Glenn Tambu, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> Well Very well pronounced. You should see what I do in a custom. There I <laughs> And I know a lot about African culture. I have lived a lot of African culture. I ask a lot of questions. In fact, I was even learning last night. I had a blast sitting and learning even more last night about all kinds of just traditions and things of that. So please, please, please know that as I stand here before you as an American, that's just the exterior, but inside, I get it all. I mean, I've done LaFole, I've been in LaFole negotiations. I mean, I've, I have covered the waters. I've, I've put the uh, shovels of dirt at a funeral in pearls and high heels because they didn't tell me I was going to be shoveling dirt. I have experienced all things Africa. So please let that also be in the back of your mind as I come before you that I'm not standing here as somebody who doesn't get African culture. Amen? So, let's look at whatever, doing whatever takes is necessary. One of the things I realized is the desire of life demands that you give God your best, unqualified yes. Your best, unqualified yes. Because how many of us, if we're honest, and I used to do this. You give God your yes with stipulation. He gets applause. Okay, God, I hear you. But if you make sure that I have enough money in savings, if you make sure that everything is just right, if you make sure I've already found my Boaz, if you make sure I've already had my children that I want, if you make sure I've had everything just right, and it's a sunny day, low humidity, great weather, then I'll obey what you told me to do. We give him conditions. You know what one of my conditions was? God, you can use me, but please don't send me to Africa. <laughs> please do not send me to Africa. Because so, like so many Americans, I was ignorant to all things Africa. But we do that if we're honest. We give him a conditional yes. God is not a conditional God. To live the designer life, you have to be willing to give God your absolute, unqualified, best yes. And then you know what you know what else you have to do? You have to do it again and again and again. 
Because that becomes a lifestyle. The unqualified yes is a lifestyle because God is, you know, the kingdom is constantly advancing. Walking by faith is a constant thing. So you may say yes to something a year ago, but now God wants to do a new thing. You've got to be ready again with your unqualified best yes. The desire of life is all about that unqualified best yes. And then when you give him your yes, own your yes. Take a stand for your yes. Because the Bible says you're going to have obstacles and different things are going to happen. Like we know this. But ladies, we have to get so resolute in our yes that, you know, some of us, we say, okay, I'll do it. And I'll step out on faith. And then the moment an obstacle arises, we want to retreat. You know, like the Israelites and say, okay, well, I may as well go back into Egypt because... You know, better the devil I know than the one I don't. You were ready to go back. Own your yes. You stand firmly in your yes. You know, my uh, my new, I guess, life way of living uh, that I came up with about a couple months ago is um, to be unwavering. And I said I was even going to start, for those of you who are on social media, I said I was even going to start using on social media as my hashtag because I love it. It's to be unwavering. And that comes actually out of James where it says, you know, ask God, but ask in faith. And not wavering. Because a man like that is double-minded. He shouldn't expect to receive from God. Ladies, that's probably one of our greatest challenges is we are so unwavering. You know, we flip-flop. And I mean, how many, I mean, even in a practical sense, how many of you have friends? Some of you may be sitting next to that friend. I mean, something as simple as going out to eat, and they're looking at the menu, and it's like, oh, I think I'll have the lamb. No, actually, I think I'll have the chicken. But you know what? I'm really trying to slim down and do this other thing, so maybe I should just have a salad. And it's just like, oh, I'm bad, I'm I mean, everything is just so, like, they can't be firm and take a stand on even the simplest of things. You know, shopping is a mission because you can look at a dress and then you can bring it home and then you can put it on and then you look at, oh, does this look right? Does that look right? Does my butt look big? Is this open? I mean, we're just, in everything, just so, it's like we're unstable. The Bible describes it as unstable. Living the desire of life, you have to get to a point where you're just going to be unwavering, where you give God your yes and you own it and you stand it and you don't waver. Amen? I need to drink some water. Yeah, it's so dry here this time of year. I feel like I'm about to shrivel up. <laughs> I asked. VIP table, which should know better. I said, is it ghetto to take this pink plastic bottle up there? And they said, no. So if anybody, who thinks it's ghetto? Really? <laughs> you think it's ghetto? <laughs> I questioned them because when they brought it to my table, I had it sitting over there in the corner discreet. And I wasn't going to bring it up here. And they said, oh, no, it's fine. I was like, Okay. <laughs> so I'm not taking I'm not taking matches, but I'm not taking responsibility for this ghetto behavior. Because I asked a whole table full of VIPs and they all gave me a blessing. So sorry about that. 
So you're asking yourself, Stacey, how do I become unwavering? How do I do it? Because I'm that person who's just constantly back and forth, and I can't stand in my yes and own my yes, and I you know, make a decision, but then one little thing, or somebody says something, and then I back away from it or dial it down. Let's look at some practical steps. You know, Lady Chico said I'm practical. Let's look at some practical steps of how to become unwavering. The first thing is, stop negotiating. Stop negotiating. See, faith doesn't compromise. It doesn't have to. Compromise is for your spouse, not the things of God. You don't need to compromise, and you don't need to negotiate. Because when you're firm and resolute in what you believe, you'll recognize you don't need to compromise, and you don't need to negotiate. So God may give you something big. But then you start looking at your circumstances and you start thinking about what people said and you start wondering what if and you know, all the stuff starts playing in your mind. And then you start negotiating it down. So God has this big, great plan and by the time you get finished, you've negotiated it down to some little small thing. Ladies, you don't have to do that. You don't have to negotiate. Because the design of life is about having a radical faith. A radical faith that doesn't even entertain negotiation. You know, tell the voice of God. I tell the voice of God all the time. I am not paying attention and attending to the voice of God. I am not negotiating with the voice of God. And I don't do it. When the voice of God comes in, literally, I shut it down. Stop negotiating. Stop compromising. Go with what God gave you. Because what I have found with women, which is why I'm so passionate about women, I get to travel all over the world and I get to meet women in different parts of the world. And one of the things I find so similar, no matter where I go, is that we play small. We play small. Men don't do that. They have a confidence that's just, you know, it's astounding sometimes. Because I've even, you know, joked with my husband, he, as, we, as we've grown in love, his love shows in his gut. <laughs> and we were going on holiday, and I suggest, I said, well, are you going to put a shirt over that? And he said, for what? <laughs> and see, ladies, we can have like an inch, a dot of sudden, we're like, on, we're, we're all covered up because we don't have the confidence. Men don't think about this stuff. We play so small because we obsess over the things that really don't matter. And then we condition ourselves to think so much smaller. I know I was playing small. I would have, 10 years ago, you could not have convinced me with a million dollars that I would be traveling every continent speaking to women all over the world. I would have never believed it because I wasn't playing big. I was playing small. I was just happy doing what I was doing, serving in church. I mean, it never even would have occurred to me because I, just, I had to live on the things of God. I had God in the box with me. And so I want to encourage you to start believing beyond your comfort zone because living a designer life is never inside of your comfort zone. There's going to be something uncomfortable, something you're not accustomed to. There's going to be your opportunity to go to whatever your whatever your version of going to Africa with no water and lotion would be. 
where it's not familiar, you think it's uncomfortable, but your greatest blessings will come and your greatest growth spurts will come when you step out of that comfort zone. So I want you to right now take a second and examine just mentally and think about right now where you are with your comfort and what you would need to do to step out of that. Because everybody has it. Everybody, every woman sitting in this room has a comfort zone. What, do you, what would it look like if you were to step outside of that? But before you stepped outside of it, if you were to believe beyond your comfort zone. That's how you start to take the limits off of God. You see how that works? You guys, I know because it's not church, I'm not going to turn your Bibles on the street if you can check it later if you'd like. Uh, one of the scriptures I like is from Mark 6 and 5. And the New Living Translation says, and because of their unbelief, they're talking about Jesus in his hometown, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he, talking about Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. If right now you took an honest assessment of your life, would Jesus be amazed at your unbelief? Would he be amazed thinking about everything he's already brought? As faithful as he's already shown you to be. Would he be amazed right now at how small you're limiting to him to? Would he be amazed at how you're not willing to elevate your expectations and get into agreement with what he promised? Would Jesus be amazed at your unbelief? I know 10 years ago he would have been amazed at mine. He would have been completely amazed. Now, you know, I've had enough life that, you know, I can I can I can I can believe as big as, as my imagination will take me, but that I've taken God at his word. And I've taken a stand for faith. Amen? In fact, even now, you know, Rachel was so sweet. I'll share this with you guys who don't know, um, because I've also realized when you're when I'm traveling through Africa that there's also this misconception that you know in America our lives are perfect, um, and that's not true. That's not true either. In fact, it's very not true. Um, and I was sharing with Rachel when she came, and she's like, "How are you doing?" I said, "I'm soldiering on," because literally right before I left to come here two weeks ago. My husband, my husband is currently now battling cancer, and he's in radiation, so he's very sick from the radiation. His mother, two weeks ago, they gave her three weeks to live, so basically, according to the doctors, tomorrow's her last day. But it's not the I went and prayed over. I said, look, you're going to live and not die until I get back to South Africa. <laughs> so, and my father, who had Parkinson's, he fell right before I left to come here. And I had to travel from Atlanta to Florida, about an hour and a half flight, check on him, come back to land, and then prepare and get ready to come out here. So my life as I stand before you is far from perfect. But I believe God so big and trust him that I'm able to have a peace and still carry on with what he has for me because I believe him big. Amen. And I refuse to, you know, give in to a pity party. See, the enemy loves a good pity party. Yeah. How many of you know that that's really the only person that shows up? <laughs> God 
really so not at your pity party. We want to believe that, you know, we're completely in order and God is in there in the pit with us and, you know, we have every right to be, you know, look at what's happening. We have every right to have this pity party. But it's really just you and the enemy in there. And you might have a friend or two that will indulge you, and they're really not a friend because if they indulge you in your pity party, they're not a good friend. I don't indulge my friend. I give about five minutes. I said, okay, time's up on this. <laughs> and now we need to look and figure out what's the solution. Yeah. You know, let's move into a solution. In fact, someone actually said to me, they said, if you want sympathy, don't call Stacy. <laughs> now, if you want a solution or you want prayer, you can call it. But if you just want to sit in the problem, no, no. <laughs> Amen. The second thing you have to do is you have to surrender to God, not your experience. Surrender to God, not to your experience. That's a good word. Because too many of us, we surrender to our experience. So whatever experiences we've had in life, whatever has shaped us, that's what we surrender to. And we all have, you know, no matter where you are, no matter what culture, we all have those experiences that shape us. And until we get into a kingdom mindset and renew our mind, you can think that your experience is very normal and very okay until you start to renew your mind. I'll give you an example that I had to learn. When I was a young girl, growing up, my father was a homicide. He was an undercover homicide detective. Yes, just like what you see on TV and in the movies. <laughs> And, you know, we had lots of security around the house, but we also had lots of guns, loaded guns, in the house. And there were loaded guns everywhere. I mean, in the towel closet, in the, in the, the drawer where the forks are. I mean, just everywhere. But because I grew up with them, I, that was very normal to me. And, you know, Dad always had guns on him, and, you know, security was always the utmost concern. We had to sleep at the house pitch dark, no nightlights or anything, because if somebody did get in, they would be at a disadvantage because they don't know where the furniture is, but we do, and, you know, all these things. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally serious. Like, I learned as a little girl, I would go down to the shooting range and learn how to shoot, you know, a little tart, and I could barely even see above the counter, and they give me a little stool to stand on, and I'm standing there, you know, just like, practicing and stuff, and that was my life as a child. But I thought it was normal. That was my normal until I got older and someone had come to the house and my dad had actually accidentally let his gun out, like not in a drawer, and I didn't like in plain sight. I'm going on about life, like, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's go play Barbies. And they're like horrified, and they're like frozen in their tracks, like. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out what had them so horrified. And they're like, why is that there? And I'm like, that? Like a gun? And she was like, yes! <laughs> that was when I realized maybe this is a normal. <laughs> maybe everybody is a little like this. <laughs> Everybody has something that has shaped them that you carry, and you will carry it on to glory unless you renew your mind and get into a kingdom mindset. 
So that's what I mean by when I say surrender to God, not to your experience. So whatever your experience has been, whether you had to, you know, put ashes on windows when somebody died out in the rural area and you were the person who always had to come and clean the windows after they put the ashes on there. Okay, you all look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Give me some Zulu people over 35. You know what I'm talking about. If you're a Zulu and over 35, raise your hand. Okay. You know what I'm talking about, though. Okay, see. Because all these young people are sitting here looking at me. We don't do that. It was before your time. But whatever your experience was, it has shaped you. And I mean, let's just be honest and, and put it all on the table. Even, I mean, apartheid ended, what, 19 years ago? So there are people in this room who grew up in a completely, you know, segregated South Africa. That's not a kingdom mindset. That was a government policy. And you have to renew your mind to resolve that. Because otherwise you will live based from that experience versus surrendering to what the Word of God says. You see how that works? Yep. Amen. Amen. One of the things I love about thinking about the mind is 2 Corinthians 10 and 3. And I just want to give you guys these scriptures and for the sake of time you can look at them later. Um, which you probably know the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But one of my favorite scriptures that I use to help me get my mind right is 2 Corinthians 10 and 5. And that's to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The captive is actually a strong word when you think about it. It's not like, you know, asking to have a seat or, you know, gently please excuse yourself negative thought. It says take it captive to what Christ says. So you know what that means? That means with negative thinking, with non-kingdom thoughts, and small thinking, and compromising and negotiating thoughts come in your mind, you're supposed to take them captive. That's not a nice passive, well... That is a very strong position to take and say, no, negative thought. If God did not say that about me, I'm not going to think. Yeah. I'm not going to think about what if I fail, what if it doesn't work out, what if I'm defeated, what if I lose money, all of these things. Because that's not what God said your portion is. He said he'll supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. He says the victory is yours, that you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. So none of those thoughts are in agreement with his word. So that means they shouldn't be allowed to stay. Because one of the things I've realized in life, it's not the thoughts you have, it's the thoughts you keep. Because you might get a negative thought, and I get them all the time. Even when I was on my way coming here, I mean, it's 18 hour flying, it's a lot of time to think. Yeah. <laughs> what else are you going to do? And, you know, the voices out started coming out of my head like, you know, here you are again, you know, now your mother-in-law's like on her deathbed, she's got three weeks, Brady's like barely making it with his radiation treatments, you know, dad's fall over his Parkinson's, and once again, you're packing up like, okay, family, see you later. <laughs> and so the voice of doubt was kind of trying to come, and it's like, no, I took a casting. Like, I'm not even going to entertain and negotiate that. So it's not the thoughts you have, it's the ones 
because it's actually a proven scientific fact that when you have a negative thought, you have literally 30 seconds before that thought becomes a feeling. 30 seconds. I dare you to try it the next time you have a negative thought. That if you give it less than 30 seconds, you will avoid now having a negative feeling. Because what happens when you get a negative feeling? Now you're feeling some kind of way, so guess what? More and more negative thoughts start coming. Now you can't really come back because now they're coming faster because you feel bad and you feel in a negative space. They're coming faster than you can even get rid of. So when they come, don't let them stay. And I've, I've literally had people come back to me or, you know, they'll email or message and say, you know, I started doing that and it works. Don't give that negative thought more than 30 seconds. You don't want it to become a feeling. Amen? I'm going to read you from Romans 8 and 35 because I think this will really help to bring this home for you. It does for me. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death as the scriptures say? For your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. Despite all these things. So in the text, I mean, basically, like all hell is breaking loose. Anybody ever had all hell break loose in your life? Only two of us? I'm thinking, okay, you all are living way better than I'm living. But all hell is breaking loose. But what does it say? Despite all these things, despite whatever you have going on, victory is still yours through Christ. And living the designer life requires that you get firmly rooted and planted and have a stance of despite all these things, victory is still mine through Jesus Christ. So that when you face obstacles or situations, you have to have that despite all these things mindset. That's part of a kingdom mindset. Okay, talk to me. I'm getting here in the headlights. Amen. <laughs> Are you hearing me? Yes. Because I wish you guys could see see what you look like, what it looks like to me. Because this is what it looks like to me. <laughs> Which, of course, makes me think, okay, maybe they're not understanding because I do have a wee bit of an accent. But then I think about all the television that I see here based out of America. So I'm like, okay, I know they hear me because I see what comes on television here. And they are speaking American English. But I really want you to get this and think about how difficult it is to get your mind right if you're not doing it through God. You're not going to be able to get your mind right if you don't do it through renewing your mind. That's the only way to get your mind right to be able to live the designer life. Amen? And another thing I started thinking, you know what I love? One of the things I love about these flights is you really do have a lot of time to think. And it just seems like you get 
even more and more thoughts. You know, you're that high, but the air just soaring across the ocean. I think. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I laugh about that. I said, you know, some people are so scared about, you know, the idea of, you know, flying and what happens when you come over here and stuff. And you really don't think about it, but it so defies just logic because of the way they fly when they fly down south of the land, you're literally only flying over land for about two of the 18 hours. The rest of the time is all ocean because they come right off the coast, you know, in America, from the southern part of Atlanta. And then they just go across the ocean all the way down, practically to Durban. So most of the flight is ocean. Um, and it's, it's a great time to think. And while I was flying this time, I started thinking. And I realized, why do we have such a hard time with this whole mind thing? Like, why is it such a struggle? Because it's such a battle. And I realized that we don't have the original mind. Because if you think about Adam, Adam was able to name every single creature, everything in the garden, and commit it to memory. Like, right there. Adam had the original mind. Something happened when the fall occurred. Now, here's the, the good and the bad news. The good news is that this is profound. The bad news is I don't know what happened. <laughs> that didn't come to me. However, we can ask Pastor Jafar to address that. Because <laughs> I don't know what happened, but something happened, and now we don't have the original mind. Because even Einstein, who was supposed to be like the smartest man ever, he only used 12% of his brain. Most of us use about 8%. So we're not operating with the original mind. So if we're going to have a kingdom mindset and live a designer life, that's why we have to renew our minds constantly. We're only dealing with 8%. You see how that works? I thought, when that came to me on the plane, I, I liked it actually. I was like, yeah, that is true. Adam was able to do that. And sometimes I can't remember what I walked upstairs for. <laughs> You don't, you don't relate to that either, but you will. <laughs> Keep living and you'll, you'll come back to me in 30 years and say, girl, you were right. <laughs> but that's why it's so important. Let me tell you what else comes against having a kingdom mindset. And this might hurt some feelings, but you'll be okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's the company we keep. If you're trying to believe God big and you're renewing your mind and you're being on purpose for the things of God and you're obedient and you're like, I'm living this designer life. But your friend, some of you may be sitting next to her. Don't look at her. Don't look at it. Don't make eye contact. Look at me. But you may be sitting even next to her. But there are people you may spend time with that are actually nothing more than an echo for the voice of doubt. And they're well-meaning people. It doesn't mean they're not nice people and they don't have a good heart like none of those things. But you really have to evaluate. I hear you in that classic graphic speedway. <laughs> Trying to look away and be discreet. That thing is just drums it away. 
You had friends that just echoed the voice of God. And while you're believing big here, they're thinking about, well, but what about this? And you know, so-and-so tried to do something like that. And I'm not sure how that worked out for them. And well, you know, maybe you should try and do something a little more safe and you know, or maybe you should just kind of believe from something a little more realistic. Or, and it's not that they're trying to do it in an ill-intended way, it's just who they are. And it's where their mind is. And so you have to be willing to evaluate if you're designing your life, you're playing big, you're believing God big, you're believing beyond your comfort zone, you're renewing your mind, you've got this kingdom mindset, you may have to truly evaluate the company you keep. And really, really consider it. I mean, you know the rule of five. The fab five, the five people you spend the most time with will have the greatest influence on your bank account, your health, your weight, you know, your goals, the goals you set, the goals you achieve, everything. The five people you spend the most time with. Think about that right now. Think about the five people you spend the most time with. Sober, isn't it? Some of you may have to go home and clean houses. <laughs> some, some, some friends may not be friends after this. Feel free to throw me under the bus and say, look, girl, some American came. <laughs> and she told me we can't be friends. <laughs> because I'm believing God big. But I really want you to evaluate that. Amen? Think about the story of Mark 2 and 4. And I love this, but remember the man who was paralyzed and they were trying to get him to Jesus and his friends took him up on the roof and lifted the roof off and lowered him down to get him to Jesus. That's the kind of friends you want to have around you when you're living the design of life. You need some rip the roof off friends. <laughs> Wait, I love breaking the bike. Like, if you're not ripping the roof off, if you're not one of those, then you need to be a casual acquaintance. But you need those rip the roof off kind of friends because you're believing God. You want to be, no matter where you are in life, you want to be all that God has for you. Amen? Here's another thought that I enjoy. On my way over here on the plane. And I think this is big. I really, when this hit me, I said, this is so true. Ladies, do you know what we do that keeps us from being unwavering and living the design of life? When God gives us something, I'm going to call the principle of first voice. God's voice is always the first voice. Go, come, do, an action word. It's the first voice. The second voice is always the voice of doubt. So God will give you something. And you're clear. You know that this is what you're supposed to do. In fact, it happened to me when I was, the first time I came to Africa, we were at a church, visiting a church. It wasn't even our church. 
And the pastor there had given my husband Brady his word. And we were in the back of the church. And he'd given him his word about all these things he was going to do in Africa. And I'm thinking, well, that makes sense. Because Brady, unlike his wife, always said, well, you know, Stacy, when I retire, I think I'd like to be a blessing in Africa. I said, God bless you. <laughs> so the word was like, okay, well, maybe we'll see this thing come to pass. The next week, I went back to that church's prayer service. They had a 5 a.m. prayer service, and I went. And as I was coming out, they were looking for people to sign up to go from the South Africa for a conference to just help out and pray and things like that. I did what any good wife would do. <laughs> I signed Brady up. <laughs> to go to Africa and help with help the conference. And I gave them all his details and said, this is perfect. <laughs> and literally, I got in the car, and it was as clear as a bell, and God said, not him, you go. That was the first voice. Second voice said, God, listen to me. It's on you and I in this car, and on this one, you missed it. <laughs> because you know and I know. I am not your go to Africa kind of And I wrestled with all the way home, and I got in the house, and my husband says, You look like you saw a ghost. I said, I think I did. He said, What happened? And I told him, and he said, Well, then you need to go. And literally, four days later, not knowing anybody going on the trip, because remember, I just visited the trip, I didn't know anybody was going. I didn't know anybody in Africa. I didn't even know anybody who'd ever been to Africa and come back and tell the story. <laughs> I got on a plane and came to South Africa. Now, what I didn't know, because again, Americans are so ignorant to the things of Africa, because all we see are swollen bellies, flies, and dirty water, so we give to these ministries to help everyone in Africa. So that's where I thought. I thought I was going to something like that. <laughs> And literally, when I tell you I could have performed surgery out of my suitcase, I had everything imaginable. I had mosquito nets. I mean, I had everything. And then I arrived in Johannesburg, and they hosted us at the Michelangelo Hotel. Imagine <laughs> But right, I came to find that out later. Unfortunately, I went to one of those places where I needed all the stuff in my first suitcase. I went to one of those places next, and I didn't have any of it, because then I thought everywhere was like Johannesburg. But the first voice is always God. The second voice is always the voice of doubt. You know, in 2 Corinthians where it says, and now these three things remain faithful and love, because faith cancels out the voice of doubt. Perfect love casts out all fear. But it's the second voice that will mess you up right. Think about this. In the Garden of Eden, the first voice was God. The second voice was the serpent. When Jesus told Peter to come, that was the first voice. The second voice was the voice of God, like, wait a minute, I can't walk on water. And he listened to the second voice and he started to sing. We make the decision to listen to the second voice. And that's what keeps us from living all that God has for us. 
because we don't listen to the first voice. There are probably some people sitting here right now. If you're honest, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I really want to be more about self-reflection. I'm not trying to embarrass you. There are people in here right now who probably know they heard God's first voice. You heard it, but you made the decision to listen to the second voice. Now you have to ask yourself why. Why am I listening to the second voice? Why am I listening to the second voice of doubt and distraction and confusion? And that goes back to the company that you're keeping. Because are they speaking doubt and happen to echo the voice of doubt? And then it gets confusing. You have to, you know, that's part of guarding your heart is what you're willing to listen to. Because you can get confused when you have different you know, voices that you're hearing. One of the things I love about being here is you know, I get to meet so many people. And one little, people, one little, one little person is a very precocious little, well now she's three, but at the time she was two. And her name is Kendi. She, I'm the only American she's ever like had like one-on-one with to actually, you know, experience. So she hears my American accent very well. And when she rides in the car with her parents, if they turn on the GPS, she thinks it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and she sits in the car and she says, Mommy, what is, what is Auntie Stacy saying? What is she telling us to do? Well, where is Auntie Stacy? Because she hears the GPS and she just assumes it's me. But we do that sometimes where we've got different voices and we're getting confused. And instead of confirming it with the word of God, we take a public opinion poll. And then we start surveying our five. What do you think? Well, what about this? What about this? And then we get confused. And then you know what happens when you get confused? You stay stuck. You stay exactly where you are. It's like you're anchored to where you are. And then you know what else we do? Because we're just going to be honest and open, open the thing all the way up. Because we're Christians, we have a great Christianese excuse. In our stuck place, we say, well, actually, I'm just waiting on God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that sounds good. It sounds socially acceptable. Kind of makes you seem a little super spiritual. Maybe even like you go in the dark in your prayer room, waiting on God. Oh. But that's how we justify that stuck place. But if you're honest, what are you waiting on God to do that he hasn't already done and told you it's already done in his words? You know, because it is finished really means it is finished. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what am I really waiting for? What am I really waiting for when God has given me this very clearly? What am I waiting for? And you stay in this stuck place, and then your five people are not trying to get you out of your stuck place. So you stay. And you get comfortable. And you wait. And then you wait some more. And then, what we do, ladies, is we will go seek advice from the clueless. We seek advice from the clueless. Let me make this plain for you. They told you I'm practical. 
How many in here are single? Single ladies, raise your hand. This is the perfect way to help you understand. This is my favorite example of this. Single ladies go out with single ladies. They might even meet Mr. Wright. They will consult their other single friends on what to do next. <laughs> so now, if all of you are single, everybody's trying to figure out, you know, is this Boaz? Is it novel? Should I do this? Should I say that? Should I SMS him back now? Should I wait until he SMSes me again? So you're doing all, getting all this advice from other single women who have never been married. They don't know. They're just, you know, they're just going, doing the best they can with what they think. And you know what we're doing? We're going through life getting travel agent advice when you need a tour guide. A travel agent has never been. She's just sitting in an office with a computer and a brochure. She's like, this is a great place for you to go. But that's what your single friends are doing. I think you should message them back. They're being travel agents. You need a tour guide. You need someone who has been there, has come back, and will show you and take you with them. So if you're trying to start a business, if you're trying to go back to school, Whatever it is you're trying to do, stop going through life with travel agent advice when you need a tour guide. Wow. Amen. Good work. And we ask people, we ask inside of our five, inside of our comfort zone, and you may be getting ready to do something that nobody in your five has a clue about. You know what that means? You have to step outside of your five. Step outside of your comfort zone and learn from somebody who's been there. And here's the next thing, ladies. The person you have to learn from may not look like you. Amen. They may not look like you. And that's okay. You know who taught me what I know about this whole business? A white man who's now almost 70 years old. His name's John Maxwell. Now, do I look like John? No. <laughs> Clearly not. But once I knew that this is what God had for me, I didn't have anybody in my five who had ever done this. I didn't have anybody in my 10. I had to be willing to learn and get advice from someone who has been there. Yeah. Amen. Okay, I'm getting gear and headlights again. <laughs> Where are we? Where are we, people? No, where are we as far as why I'm getting gear and headlights? Are you taking it in? Okay. Thank you, Z. <laughs> the third thing that I think I really want you to, you know, focus on for that, you know, you go, you know, we always go to these seminars and workshops and things, and you come back with notes and stuff. You might have pages and pages of notes, but 
do you really go back and apply it? So I said, I want to make sure that there are, you know, main points that you can truly start putting into action. Because it doesn't do you any good to come in thinking it's nice, you look beautiful, you got dressed, you came, you had a lovely lunch, it's a great view, nice room. But the real goal, the real goal is to actually be able to apply this so you can start seeing change, positive change, in your life. So the third point that I want to encourage you with is to stay the course. Stay the course. Because, ladies, we get off the course. And how do you stay in your course? How do you stay the course? It's by your decisions. See, your decisions reveal your priorities, what you believe, what you don't believe, where you are in faith. Your decisions reveal all of that. And the only way you can stay the course is if you're making God's decisions. Some things, you know, you have the choice, and they're possibly a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's a difference between a good thing and a God thing. And you have to make sure your decisions are in agreement with what you want to do and what God has for you. Because you know that saying, the devil is in the details? Actually, he's not. The devil's in your decision-making. Trying to get you to decide something contrary to what God has promised you and what God has told you. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, well, you know, my situation is what it is, but, you know, I can't help it because, you know, I didn't grow up with certain things, or I didn't know my dad, or I grew up on the wrong side of town, or whatever it is. But ultimately, when we get to a certain point in life, we have to take ownership of our decisions. Because typically, where you are right now today has less to do with what happened to you and more to do with what you decide. If you are in debt up to your eyeballs and can't see straight, those are decisions you made. That is not because you didn't come from a good family. Those are decisions you made. And so I want to encourage you to start being more considerate of your decisions. Listen to this. I want to read this for you because I love this. Deuteronomy 30 and 19. I'm going to read it. Don't worry about trying to turn to it. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God obeying him and committing yourself firmly, operative word firmly, to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, in the text, the right decision is clearly spelled out. I mean, it's a question and an answer. Like, oh, that you would choose life. Clearly, that's the right answer. But we go through life and we have decisions that we have to make. And we may not be able to just look at the text and say, hmm. But it's so important to make good decisions when you're living a designer life. Because 
If we are honest, I'll be honest. My greatest regrets can be directly traced to my worst decisions. And if you look at it, if I look at it now, I can clearly say, what was I thinking? And chances are, I wasn't thinking. And it was an emotional decision or, you know, a decision for all the wrong reasons. You have to start getting strategic about making God decisions. Decisions that line up and are clearly in agreement with the word of God and what he has for you. Amen? And one of the things I've realized is the less you know about God, the more bad decisions you will make. There is a real benefit in knowing what the Word of God says because then it allows you to make much better decisions. You know, everybody loves the quote, oh, your ladder will be greater. You know, they shouted in church, my ladder shall be greater. Well, it will when you start making better decisions. It's a sober, isn't it? But it's so important because we will make a decision a bad decision, the wrong decision. And if we put it in terms of faith, we know it's not the right decision. For example, I said I wasn't going to say anything on time, but I can't help you. Ladies, I've seen it so much, really, really, in this country. You will get a man who is has loser written all over him. Yeah. You're letting them move into your house, letting them drive your car. Mr. Loser, you buy Mr. Loser airtime so he can SMS you while you're at work. <laughs> and then you say you love him. And you will have the nerve to want God to bless it and you somehow make Mr. Loser Mr. Right. So we make these bad decisions. After we've made the bad decisions, that completely are not in agreement with the word of God. And the word is clear that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's clear. You got your bad decision. Now you want to sprinkle a little God on it. And pray that it comes out okay on the other side. But God is not schizophrenic where he's here and there and that's not how it works. You know, the kingdom operates on principle. So if you went against God's word and got Mr. Luther, who's not working, so he shouldn't be eating, certainly should be eating at your house with your food. Amen. Driving your car, using your airtime. Where would you ever think along the way that God should be blessed in this situation with this happily ever after story? got the signal for time. So we have to start thinking about that in our decision making. Amen? And as you get ready to think about your decision making, ladies, we have to stop worshiping our emotions. Some of, some of you have a shrine in your house set up for your emotions and it's all about how you feel. 
And if you feel this way, then you make this decision. You go this direction. And if you feel this way, then you... We worship our emotions. And everything is about how we feel. God is not a feeling. He's a faith. You may have to do something by faith and your feelings don't agree at all. And so that's when you have to have your despite all these things, nevertheless moment, and say, you know what? God, I'm not feeling this, but that's okay. I'm going to do what you told me to do. My feelings, I tell my feelings, but I want to do something. I say, feelings, I'm going on. You catch me when you can. Catch up to me when you can. I'm going on by faith. We have to stop worshiping our emotions. What does an emotional decision even look like? You want to get out of debt. That's your goal for the year. I'm going to get out of debt. But every Saturday, you're at the, one of these shop, one of these Brazilian shopping centers around here shopping. You're shopping every weekend, but your goal is to get out of debt. Or, let me make sure I'm offending everybody. Your goal is to lose weight. And you eat everything that you shouldn't be eating, and you are allergic to the gym. <laughs> On Sundays, you sit down, and Sunday's a great TV here. I know, because it's my favorite TV night, because you get our perfect way and date my family. <laughs> And you sit down on Sunday and you said, I'm losing this weight this year. And you have the biggest bowl of ice cream and pudding and everything else you can find while you're sitting and watching our perfect wedding and, and, date, and date my family. That's an emotional decision that's completely not in agreement with what God has for you and what you have stated are your goals, your kingdom goals. You say you want a husband, but you're willing to date someone else's. That's an emotional decision. Amen? Amen. Have I offended everybody? Did I leave somebody unoffended? Raise your hand if you're not offended, so I can offend you. Ladies, I really want to implore upon you as I get ready to close because I was just told I had to have time. But if you can take these three principles, don't worry, I am wrapping up, but there weren't three anymore to the principles. If you can take these three principles, you will begin to unlock the personal power that's within you. You know, the Bible says the greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. That's the personal power that you have. That's inside of you, but when you can get to the point where you're living this desire life, you uncover and unleash that power. You start creating with intentions, your decisions start to reflect the things of God, and then you become unwavering. You're able to stand in it and live the life, the beautiful, perfect, amazing life that God has for you. Amen? And stop being afraid. Faith is your safety net. And I'm going to close with this. I have to share the story with you because I was so fascinated by it. When they built the San Francisco Bay Bridge back in the 1800s in America, 
out in California. It was like the biggest bridge of this time, and you know, of course, it didn't seem like a good idea. But they started the construction because it was actually going to go over a body. It was going to collect. It was going to connect Oakland, California, with San Francisco because it was a big body of water that you know separates them. And people were having to take a ferry all the way across. And back in the 1800s, it could take you all day to go, which should really only take you about 10 minutes. And so they built this bridge because cars were being you know invented, people could drive across. And as they're building the bridge and it's under construction. The construction workers would be, you know, way up high because the bridge is like incredibly high, the tallest bridge at its time. And they were falling, some of the construction workers were falling to their death. So some brilliant person says, we need to get a safety net so that the construction workers are not dying if they fall off the bridge. So they put a safety net from one end to the other. So if they fell when they were working, the safety net would catch them and they wouldn't fall to their death. From the moment the safety net went up, 15 people lost their life before the safety net. From the moment the safety net went up, no one else fell. Three years of construction and no one fell. Faith is your safety net. Your God is not going to let you fall without a plan. So stop being afraid to live the amazing desire of life that God has for you, ladies. Amen? Amen. 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 My time is up. Yeah. <laughs>